The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, one of the things that drove me crazy growing up is this one question that we ask everyone in our lives. When you first meet someone, first thing you're going to say, okay, what's your name? You know, my name's Chris. I live in Birmingham. And you have your name. And then you would ask me, okay, well, you know, where are you from? Or I might ask you, where are you from? And this question would drive me crazy. And it's because it was always a little awkward for me to answer. I grew up kind of a little differently than some people. I didn't live in one place. My parents lived overseas and were missionaries. We moved once or twice a year, frequently going all about the world, and America too. But this is the way I grew up. And I'm not alone in this. I mean, there's probably some of you in this room that grew up that way. I mean, you, you know, you could be an army brat, or just because of your parents' jobs, you moved around frequently. Or what's happened in your life with your family is you've moved often. I mean, the flip side of this is living in one place for all of your life one street, one family home, and you had the same vacation spots that you would always go to, that restaurant down the street that you love to go to because they make the best pasta or whatever it is. And so one of the hard things when we are getting to know each other, because we don't obviously know each other, is, okay, let's tell us about ourselves. And when we haven't lived life together, our challenge is, okay, well, how do I describe this experience of growing up? How do I help you know who I am, and if we're talking, how do you explain to me who you are? And it's because we haven't lived together, and we jump towards all this analogy. Oh, well, growing up was like this, or my family home was like that. And we use illustrations and analogies to help us, okay, this is what it was like. It's a very similar thing when we're talking about how we first encountered Jesus, if you could kind of go there in your mind this morning. When you first encountered Jesus, and you found out that he loved you, and that Jesus died for you, that you might be saved and reunited with him. And your journey with how you learned about God has transformed and shaped you to who you are. How do you go about telling a person that? How do you tell your faith story? This is very similar to the challenge the disciples in our passage in John 16 are going to face. Because they're about to reach an hour where he's no longer with them. And they're going to have to figure out, okay, how do we tell people about Jesus? You know, they've shared many meals with him, many stories. I mean, they have seen the scriptures come alive with him teaching them everything that they have meant. They've had this deeply personal time with him. I mean, they've seen him do miraculous things, turn water to wine, feed 5,000 people, and even walk on water. The lame walk, the blind see, and the dead live again. But all the while, Jesus has baffled everyone, and it's not just the disciples. He's baffled the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, with wisdom that they acknowledge could only come from God. But at the same time, the world remains confused 
fearful and angry. It's not too different than our world. Confused, fearful, and angry. The disciples have been with Jesus through all of this. And it's been like a fire hose to the mouth. There have been so many details that we've already covered in the Gospel of John. But if you were one of the disciples, ask yourself this. Because we've been in the Gospel of John for a few years. How, how would you remember all this? Everything we've covered as a church. How would you basically tell the story? Remember all these details. If this was your life, how would you tell that story? You know, um, Jesus, I, I might need a little review on what you exactly told the guy that, you, that was paralyzed on the Sabbath. You healed him, but could you tell me a little more about that? Or, you know, Lazarus, you know, you, you, resurrect, you, you brought Lazarus back to life, but, you know, why did we wait so long to go back to him? There's all these little details that say a lot about what God is doing, but it's easy to forget them. So like Jonathan mentioned my daughter is one. This is true as of Friday. And we did the whole one-year-old birthday party yesterday. And I have to say, I'm in a little bit of a denial about the idea of being a father to a one-year-old. I mean, the first year goes past in such a blur, right? And I am starting to think, okay, well, how do I explain what it's like to be a father in the past year? How do I tell the story of that experience and like help someone who is about to become a dad say, well, this is how it was? And I, I struggle. I struggle with how I would do that. It's a similar situation that the disciples are in. I mean, they've been given all this instruction by Jesus, but the hour is about to turn dark quickly. And the choices they make affect their life and even the realities of death. So the first thing we see in John 16, 25 is that Jesus came to clearly reveal his Father. Jesus came to clearly reveal his Father. Now, in John 16, Jesus has been sharing his last final words with the disciples to prepare them for what's coming next, his death, that he will no longer be with them. And he says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but tell you plainly about the Father. Now, the first thing he says is these things, which is a very general category if you think about that. Okay, what is he referring to? You know, a couple chapters before this, he says the same thing, saying, these things I have spoken while I am with you because he's acknowledging that he's going away. But it's also connected to everything that Jesus has said and done, his entire earthly life, his ministry, which has a cohesive message with a shared missional purpose. And here's the next part. How has he said these things? He's telling us here in verse 25, in figures of speech. Where he's talked figuratively now, this word is used in a number of different ways in the Bible. It, it can be used actually to mean parables, proverbs. It's when someone is talking unusually about something or the way they're talking about something, and it deviates from the normal way of talking. 
And it's typically used to express when something's being hidden or obscured by words. Hidden or obscured by words. And so this is kind of what I wanted to kind of connect starting the sermon. The fact is that he's been using these different analogies, these keys for how he's explaining his purpose, which we'll get to that. And we use it too. I mean, we have all these different expressions, right? Like, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. Or so a lot of times people will say, you know, it, it was freezing this morning. Except that doesn't work because it actually was freezing this morning in April. So, but we get what that means. He's talking in analogies. He's not being literal. But what is he referring to here? I think there's two things we could point to in this section of John, the section where he has been in the upper room talking this, these last final words with the disciples. And the first thing is something Jonathan talked about a few weeks ago. He uses the analogy of a woman giving birth, going into labor in 1621 to explain how the disciples' sorrow will be turned to joy with Christ's death and then his resurrection. But also, if you think a few chapters ago, John 15, the vine and the branches. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he that is that bears much fruit. You go back a little further. I'm just kind of referencing a few of these analogies that Jesus uses. But he talks about being the good shepherd. Right? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down the life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. But he says in verse 6 of that chapter, this figure of speech that Jesus used with them, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. And Jesus explains why he references himself as the shepherd, but the Jews who are listening to him are confused, and half of them think that Jesus is a demon. This is not exactly a good argument for how figures of speech always explain something well. My point is that a lot of times figures of speech don't help. In everything Jesus has done and said, there has been this certain figurative element, a wall, a veil, so to speak, that people are caught behind. And even though Jesus has taught with clarity, there is a deeper truth underneath something that can't quite be captured by an illustration or a metaphor. And God is the master of figurative speech. I mean, we wouldn't have words without God. And here's the danger when we use illustrations, especially ones that God doesn't give us. That all metaphors, when pressed too far, they fall apart. All metaphors, when pressed too far, they fall apart, they crumble because they in and of themselves are not the real thing. The metaphors themselves are not the real thing. Here in verse 25, Jesus is talking about the real thing. You can see this in the next sentence of this verse. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. So he's talking about not talking figuratively, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So he's talking about a time that is coming that he's already point, pointing towards past his death and resurrection, where he's not going to speak figuratively. That things are going to be made plain to the disciples. So there's going to be openness 
and what's being talked about. He's going to be frank. Nothing about this is going to be ambiguous or it's not going to be relying on some sort of comparison to something else. But Jesus is saying he's going to be straight and direct with his disciples so that they will understand who the Father is clearly. If you're like me in my head, I hear that and I see, yes, please. (laughs) Because it's not that Jesus has been misleading necessarily, but I am just caught up in the pages of this glorious book, grasping, trying to understand what is Jesus talking about. And I don't think the disciples are that different. And he puts the focus, the focus on all that he's talking about on his father. It's something we talked a lot about in John already. You can go back, and one passage I was looking at this week was John 5, where Jesus explains why he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. And he points to the fact that his father was also working, so he was going to be working. And then he goes on to say that he does nothing apart from the Father. They are completely united in will and purpose. And that all that Jesus does bears witness about his Father. The amount that Jesus talks about the Father only increases through the gospel. And so at some point, I start wondering, okay, God, you're talking, Jesus, you're talking about speaking plainly, but why have you waited so long to do this? What's, what, why, why, are you, why have you chosen to do it this way? Are you, have you misled us in this gospel? Or is there something more that the disciples lack? Is there something more that the disciples lack that blocks them from being able to hear? A couple chapters back in John 14... Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So it's a pretty clear statement. He's saying, you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. You see what I do, you see what the Father is doing. Which Seems pretty clear. But then Philip has to chime in. Philip, on verse 8, he says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And who who can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe the words that I say to you? I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I don't think Philip is alone with this confusion that the disciples are in, but they definitely don't get what Jesus is talking about, even though he's repeated it over and over and over again. Maybe you kind of feel this way sitting in this room. And I don't think, like I've said, that Jesus has been unclear or misleading. But rather, the disciples lack the ability to understand. The disciples lack the ability to understand, just like our world on its own lacks the ability to understand. The real issue is not these analogies, figurative speech, but the minds that receive them. 
the hearts and minds of the disciples are corrupt are as corrupt as anyone else and we're on the same boat with them and even with this incredible time they've had with Jesus their own sin and fickleness is blinding them and it blinds them from what Jesus is trying to do reveal his father clearly reveal his father which has been the entire purpose of Jesus's mission Paul, the way he talks about blindness, I think, is helpful in 2 Corinthians 4. Because he talks about the gospel, how the gospel is veiled to all who are perishing. But in the case of those who can't see the truth, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God who came into the world as light. So whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. That light, who Jesus embodies, is illuminating his Father, showing us who he is. I'm going to say more about illuminating and how he's revealing it, but I want to keep going to the next verse, which shows us what Jesus is revealing about his Father. He's promising it's going to be clear but what is he going to reveal about his father? What is missing? What, is being so, what are people so confused about? And what Jesus reveals is the transformative love of his father. The transformative love of his father. In that day you will ask, me, ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In that day, you know, that's, that's the day when the Father is going to be clearly revealed. This is what Jesus is talking about, is going to happen. And he's elaborating on what he just said in the previous passage. Because he's told the disciples that whatever they ask in the Father's name, Jesus' name, it would be given to them. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about this relationship between us and God. A relationship that through the cross is about to be transformed forever. And there will be a time in that day where there won't be any more distance between us and the Father. No more distance. And it's because of what Jesus accomplishes in the cross that we have complete access to God. So this is, I'm talking about the transformative love of the Father, right? That because the Father's love is being shown through Jesus, our relationship is transformed with Him. When we were broken and distant and far off and estranged, we are brought close and adopted into the family. But if you look at this verse and reading it plainly, it does sound kind of weird. I'm going to agree with you there. So if we just look at this, it almost sounds like Jesus is not talking about being involved, right? But that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. It almost sounds like Jesus is going to not talk. <laughs> He's going to close up. and say, I'm going to do all this work for you, but you're going to be in this conversation alone. 
Like, is Jesus not going to be involved? Is he basically saying, I'm out? What is he saying here? Jesus is not removing himself from our relationship with the Father. But rather, he's completing it. Jesus is not removing himself from our relationship with the Father. But he's completing it. It's his purpose to bring us back to God. He came to reveal the Father to us, but he also reveals how much the Father loves his children. In order to truly grasp how much God loves us, we have to be reunited with him. We have to be in relationship with him. We have to hear everything that he has said and is saying. Christ directs us to an hour where we will go before God, but we go before God in Jesus' name, by His work, so that when we ask God, desiring His will and His purpose, He not only hears us, but He answers us. And that when we go before Him, He sees His Son in us and welcomes us. Not our works, not our words, but Christ who has lived and spoken, whose words and works are alive and moving in our life. And Jesus isn't uninvolved in this after he accomplishes what he does on the cross. He's not involved. The Bible talks about Jesus serving as an interceding mediator. In the next chapter of John, John 17, unfolds this incredible prayer that Jesus prays. And we get a glimpse at the heart of God. Jesus is praying for you, has prayed, and will be praying for you. But if you remember, you know, the the Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father. Jesus is directing us to pray to God. He doesn't necessarily say, hey, pray to me. He's with us in our prayers and lifting us up, but he's trying to reunite us with the Father, reunite us with God. That's the focus there. So he models prayers, and he gives us complete access to the Father. And it really is a reintroduction. I mean, we're being transformed by the gospel, the grace that is breaking into our lives. But we're really being introduced into the God that we've forgotten, the Father that we've lost. It's, we're being reconciled back to God, and it's a new relationship for us. You look in verse 27. He says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. Just that first part there. The Father himself loves you. The reason that Jesus does not say here, I will speak, he's going to speak up necessarily, is because we come in his name. And God sees our love for Christ, and he sees our faith in Christ. You know, we live in a world that it just seems like every single day is becoming more and more post-Christian. More and more away from God, and a journey back into the self. And oftentimes you can hear people who, you know, are 
thinking about Christianity or approaching Christianity thinking about it. And, you know, you might say something like this. You know, I, I don't know about this God of judgment thing, but I really like all the bits about mercy, grace, and love. Can I get a little more of that? Can we hear about that more on Sunday morning? And they might say something else like, you know, I, I'm, I'm really not sure about the God of the Old Testament, but I kind of like Jesus. And for us to think that way really actually kind of splits who, how we think about the Father and how we think about the Son. We cannot do this. I mean, to separate the Father from the Son, pitting one against the other, when really they're one and the same, united in will and purpose. Jesus with his Father is God over the whole. This way of thinking where you know, the Son is pitted against the Father, it undercuts everything that Jesus has been clearly revealing about this transformed relationship with the Father. Those who experience the love of Jesus experience the love of the Father. You experience the Father's love. You experience the Father's heart. A love which forms and shapes us into new people. But in this way, our love for Jesus restores our access to Father when we didn't have that access before. That's what I was talking about with prayer. We're no longer estranged, but we're reunited in relationship. If we keep looking at our passage... He offers a little bit of a review for us, not just of what he's kind of been saying, but also what he's done in his entire life and where he's going. 28, really straightforward, simple. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Came from the Father and have come into the world. His incarnation, his advent, his coming, Jesus becoming fully human, but then leaving the world, going to the Father, his crucifixion and his death. And he's already been talking about this as I've referenced before. He said things like, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Or a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And when Jesus, back in chapter 13, is washing Peter's feet, and Peter is understandably confused, um, he says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will. And he's used all these analogies to help explain what's coming, but there's just no way for the disciples to really anticipate it. There's no way for the disciples to really get it. And since we live, this is the Sunday after post-Easter, we live in a post-Easter reality, the cross changes everything. The gift of the Spirit changes everything. Just by the fact that we know that Jesus goes and dies on Calgary transforms the way we understand about God. It is the clearest example of the triune God's love for us. And it's not just the sons. It is the fathers as well. That that debt would be paid for us. And that later, when the gift of the Spirit comes, he brings to remembrance all these details in the gospel. Remember, I've been talking about how there's so many details going on. We trust that God is going to bring these things into remembrance, which gives us this gospel. We trust that God is going to give us remembrance to what is going to help us bear witness about him in my life and in your life. But we are in a pre-Easter moment. 
and the disciples still don't get it. And we're going to see that because the rest of, the rest of this passage talks about their failure to understand. Reading from verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And just on face value, with what they say, what they say is really positive. It's really positive about Jesus. It's a little bit, maybe a little more difficult, difficult to gauge, okay? They're like, finally, we've been waiting for all this, for you to tell us clearly. Or is it a little more like, now we see you're talking plainly. Now we see you're talking literally. Either way, between those different options of how they are actually speaking, it's positive. I mean, they're affirming their commitment to Jesus. They're affirming their commitment to learn under him, to follow him. But they also seem a little bit to me like that student in class that just chimes up to, to basically make sure that the professor knew that they were listening. Like, yep, I got it. I, I, can, I, I got the right answer. I can repeat back what you just told me in verse 28. But if you look at this statement of faith they just made, what's missing? If this is their confession of faith, what's missing in what they say? They say, you know, Jesus, we know you know all things. That's a good place to start. We know you know all things. You do not need anyone to question you. This is a common practice in the rabbinic tradition where it would be common for someone to be examined before they could be approved to teach. They don't think he needs to be examined because he teaches with that authority. And then the next thing they say, and these reasons are why we believe that you are from God. From God. That's not necessarily the same thing as saying, acknowledging that Jesus is God. It's not really different than what Nicodemus says in John 3, where Nicodemus comes before Jesus and acknowledges, I know you're a teacher from God. You know, the disciples lacked the ability to understand what Jesus was telling them. But they also lacked the ability to believe. They lacked the ability to believe because they couldn't truly understand who Jesus was. And it's why even though their faith is positive, it's genuine, it's partial, it's incomplete. You know, faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus is not only to believe in him, but it's also to believe certain things about him. You know, the passage I read earlier in John 14, I, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life through which we can have salvation. He not only loves sinners, but he has died for them. Jesus is fully God, fully man, eternally equal with the Father and the Spirit. So the disciples are really working with part of this picture. There we go. I'm, I'm not done using analogies. I'm going to keep using analogies. I'm not done with part of this picture. They only have part. And Jesus knows this. Jesus sees through their lack of faith, knowing that they have deeper questions in their hearts. There's deeper questions going on in their minds. So when the Pharisees come to arrest Jesus in the garden, they will scatter like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The failure of the disciples shows us that our place with God is not dependent upon our ability to understand or even to persevere with our own sort of personal convictions or faith. It's dependent upon the faithfulness of God. His faithfulness. And even though the disciples genuinely believe they don't have the faith to follow Jesus where he is going, in the hour that is coming, and when they're tested, they fall away. Jesus knows that this is going to happen, which is why he is moving to encourage them and to comfort them. Because that's why he says he won't be alone. The Father will be with him. And Jesus is not alone in this hour of darkness. And as he comforts them, this whole passage moves to this climax of everything that Jesus has been saying. Jesus has revealed the clear and transformative love of God, and he's offering unfailing peace. He's offering unfailing peace so that we can endure the world and him. He's offering unfailing peace so that we can endure the world with him. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Faith in Jesus gives us peace to endure the world. Peace that he offers to his disciples here, even though they don't understand, even though they're going to abandon him, even though their faith is incomplete and they can't really get everything straight. But it's the same peace he offers to us, even though we aren't really that different. You know, we are weak in faith. We can fail. We can struggle. We don't necessarily understand everything. I don't understand everything that's in this book. But God is gracious to lead us through it, to reveal the things that are in it. He's revealing himself through it. And it's all because of our new relationship with God, that he has brought us close you know, John, the author of our gospel, also writes another letter in 1 John. And I think he picks up on this theme. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes in Jesus, the Son of God? Our faith in Jesus is what brings us to this place of overcoming the world because he has overcome it, that he's given us the peace to endure it. But what does overcoming the world with peace in Christ look like in a world of evil? I mean, we can look at all the news that comes out every single day and you don't need much evidence for a world that is broken and in any darkness. Earlier this week, I had the honor of hearing a man named Anthony Thompson preach. He's a priest in the Reformed 
Episcopal Church. He's currently serving a parish there in South Carolina. And he preached this incredible message of grace. Holding up our forgiveness as believers in Christ with a call to forgive others. A call to share the peace that we have in God with the world. I mean, this is something you and I would agree with. It's something that's easy for us to say. But it just feels like something completely different entirely for him to say it. It hasn't been two years since a stranger walked into a Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church and opened fire. He killed nine people, one of which was Myra Thompson, Anthony's wife, who was leading the Bible study that night. And after the arrest was made, all the families of the victims came to the bail hearing where they were given an opportunity to speak. Anthony, staring at the person who killed his wife, the mother of his daughter, he wasn't going to say anything, is what he shared earlier this week. He wasn't going to say anything. But he felt moved by the Spirit. The Spirit was there and moving in that room. He realized that he needed the peace from God in that moment, that desperate moment. And he only could move forward, the only way he could move forward with his family was to forgive. To be a light in this horrifying darkness we find in the world. To overcome evil as Christ has overcome evil. And then he just talked, just to hear him talk about this peace that came upon him and his family, this peace that is beyond anything, anything we could possibly comprehend. And it's because of that peace and the healing that Jesus is doing in that community that he still ministers, he still preaches and proclaims the gospel today because he is in Christ. Communities of peace can endure because Christ has already overcome the trial for them. Or another way of putting it is that Christ overcomes the trial with them. That he is overcoming the trial with us in the present moment. And it's because of this that like, there is great power in Christ. Like He has shown himself clearly and he's shown the Father who loves us and is with us. But this doesn't prevent us from attack, hardship, pain, even death. But we live in Him. Now, as we live in Christ, we find His strength. We can feel His power moving through us, giving us words and wisdom that we would not otherwise have. There is great power in what Christ has shown. And we also know that we're not alone that we have been reunited with God the Father, which is why we are being sent out by his love and in his peace so that all people might behold the glory of God. And I think it's at this point when you look at our passage and when you look at what Jesus has said, there's a couple questions we could ask ourselves. You know, is there a way that we can go deeper in God's revelation, his truth, is there a way that we could get deeper and dig past the surface level, you know, things that we reflect on in Scripture? Is there a way that we could really push through and seek powerful, real understanding in God and wisdom 
I also think you would like for you to ask yourself today, like, what is God teaching you about yourself in this season of your faith with him? And how is he forming and shaping you as a son and as a daughter? I think the other challenge, and it's the way I started the sermon, is how do we tell people about Jesus? We rely on what Christ has revealed. We rely on the love and the peace that is in us, giving us the words, giving us the passion to reach people. But how we do that um, is something we all have to reflect on in our communities, with our work, home, here at church. How do we apply this incredible truth that we've been given? As we end our time together, I want to reflect just, just one more moment on God's peace by doing what we already did in the service, passing of the peace. You know, it's actually connected to our benediction, something we say every single Sunday. Now go into the world in peace, have courage. Kind of really resonates with this passage. You know, we, say, we proclaim that because we know that we're united with Christ and experience his peace. And because of that, we extend his peace to others in fellowship and love. So may the peace of Christ be with you, but specifically in the walk you have with Jesus, your relationship with him. May it be deep, deep, rooted like a thousand-year-old tree. May your life bear fruit as you dig deep into his word. You dig deep into your relationship with God. May you see, feel, and experience that his love really is transformative. That your relationship with him is really changing. You can walk with him every single day. And may the peace of Christ be with you in the mundane and the normal. Even when you're washing dishes. Probably especially if you're washing dishes. Or holding that baby at home for hours and hours on end through the night. Or when you're driving to and from school or work that you would see that it's in those small moments that God's grace is breaking through, shaping and changing you. May the peace of Christ be with you in the unknown. The disciples didn't know what was going to happen, you know, when they began following Jesus or even after he was going to the cross. And we don't really know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what challenges are going to be a part of it. But we know we don't face those challenges alone, that we do that with God, with his strength, with his peace. And may the peace of Christ be with you in the midst of evil. He is steady through the storm. He's rest for you if you're weary. Hope when all is lost. Peace shades. In Christ, this is what we've been given, and this is what we have to give, which is why as Jesus offered us peace, we say to one another and also with you.